There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Il futurismo è un grande movimento antifilosofico e anticulturale idee. Intuiti, stinti, pugni, calci, gaffi, vecchiatori, purificatori, novatori e velocizzatori creato il 20 febbraio 1900. That was F.T. Marinetti, leader of the futurist movement. The speech was recorded in Italy in 1924, after the horrors of the First World War. Marinetti didn't believe in holding on to relics of the past. He was only interested in the future, in speed, in machinery in violence, youth and industry. He thought poetry could help citizens adjust to this new stage of progress. But he was also a proto-fascist who advocated the destruction of museums and wanted to fight morality, feminism and all opportunist and utilitarian cowardice. Scientists, innovation, creativity and literature all respond to the world we live in. And when terrible things happen, they have to respond to that too. The impact of the First World War on society was unfathomable. I want to explore the reaction to facial disfigurement and how writers, artists and scientists responded to the horrors of World War I. I'm Neil Denny and this is Converging Cultures. Roberta Cremoncini is the director and curator of the Esteric Collection of Modern Italian Art. This is a, um, a drawing by Carlo Carra, Ast- Atmospheric Swills, a Bursting Shell, in 1914, and it's part of a series of uh, um, works produced by various futurists, uh, playing with the words and trying to reflect the noise and the idea of war through a drawing, also through a sounds as well. So um, Zang Tam Tam is the, one of the symbols of the futurists because it actually was the noise of the uh, machine guns and the exploding shells. The futurists ended up forming a faction of the Italian avant-garde. They travelled on bicycles to the front line, turning their attention from painting to fighting. This sat right at home with Marinetti. While serving, he referred to his tank as his new mistress, and in a letter from the trenches, he called for a futurist orchestra to enact the sounds of war, with explosions and the voices of men howling, laughing and screaming. Roberta Cremoncini again. I think that the futurists were fascinated with the war because uh, they were trying to um, shake the, the past. And then every artist in Italy, still now probably, they still have to put 
uh, themselves through the ideas of, uh, of, of the past. Their heritage in Italy is, is so strong. And the futurists were trying to be um, very um, assertive in the way they actually they had to break the past. And so they, they strongly believed that the machine and the humans could uh, uh, work together and also wise very much embraced the idea of, of war because actually it was the chance to actually fast forward very much all the ideas that they had. And I think there is uh, the, the idea in the, in the manifesto is like throwing a very big um, stone in the water to make waves to be able to, to move something. Of course, Marinetti's romantic view of war was not shared by most. Outdated military tactics came face to face with machine guns and storms of shrapnel and steel. Many men were shot in the face simply because they had no experience of combat. Frederick H. Albee, the American surgeon who invented bone grafting, described the soldiers' attitude on the front line as reckless. He wrote, Men seemed to think they could pop their heads up over a trench and move quickly enough to dodge the hail of machine gun bullets. Paddy Hartley is an artist who works at King's College London. He has created Project Facade, which focuses on remembrance and memorialisation, looking at soldiers who underwent reconstructive facial surgery in World War I, alongside Dr Ian Thompson, a biomaterials scientist and device innovation specialist. Uh, my name is Paddy Hartley. Um, much of my work is about telling the stories of First World War servicemen that underwent facial reconstructive surgery performed by Sir Harold Gillies, and a lot of that incorporates embroidery and digital embroidery in, in the making of the work. You could usually kind of class the, the, the types of injuries to a certain degree based on uh, which armed service. So pilots and navy men tended to be tended to be burns. Um, with the land-based forces, it tended to be shrapnel wounds, gunshot wounds. So uh, for those chaps, it would be any part of the, any part of the face that could be kind of shot off, like noses, loss of eyes, loss of jaws. Um, and it often wouldn't just be a facial injury; it would be a facial injury and other injuries as well. Hi, um, my name's Ian Thompson. I'm one of the academic staff over at King's College London. And over the last 20 years or so, I've been working with Paddy on developing new medical implants, using some of his arts training and his ceramic processing training to create new devices for patients that are coming through our doors every day. We, we, would, we would use a free flap these days where we would take a complete section of tissue say from a forearm, say from the back of the thigh, wherever it may be on the body, completely remove it from the patient and with that piece of skin you would take a blood supply and then you would move that into the area that you want to, in this case in the face, and we would reconnect by microvascular surgery the blood supply to that piece of skin. Going back over 100 years ago, Gillies didn't have access to this kind of technology. As Paddy's already said, he was the pioneer of it. So his technique was to basically cut three sides of a rectangle and take a, a flap of skin that was still attached to the patient and then using the free end of that flap of skin attach it to the area he wanted it. That would allow the blood vessels over the next couple of weeks, months to grow into the end of that flap of skin. So finally, a month later, the surgery could be completed and the uh, surgeon would cut the last remaining part of the skin that was attached to the forearm. So the patient would then have a vascularised piece of skin hanging from their forehead. Gillies could then use that piece of skin to try and reconstruct the nose or part of the face or whatever it was that he was doing. So this required a huge amount of patience on the patient's behalf. 
to try and uh, cope with walking around with your hand on your head for a number of weeks, if not a number of months, whilst you wait for your piece of skin to grow into your forehead. But it's really um, Gilly's techniques of um, creating these uh, uh, vascularised pedicles um, that he could move around the, around the body um, that really moved us forward uh, to effectively what is modern plastic surgery today. I, I can't quite comprehend what it must have been like to be sent off to war, that the uncertainty of not knowing how long you're going to be out in, in, in service, whether or not you're going to survive the war, then receiving a life-changing facial injury, being sent to an, uh, an experimental plastic surgery unit, and you don't know whether or not you're going to leave with a face which you recognise, which your relatives recognise, and which will give you a degree of kind of comfort or security working and fitting back into society, because a lot of these guys... You know, they, they had to provide for their families. Um, you know, that's one of the driving things that Gillies kind of was thinking of. These guys have got to be able to slot back into society somehow. I, I hope I never experienced that. I hope I don't understand that. I think as, as a species, we work better under pressure. Um, not too much pressure, but just the right amount. And that's always difficult to judge because everybody's just the right amount is different. Um, and unfortunately, you know, the necessities of war and dealing with conflict means that we have to try and improve our conditions, our, our situation, and it stimulates creativity. But despite science coming on in leaps and bounds, innovations were often wildly exaggerated in the popular press. Disfigurement doesn't just change the way you look, it impacts your identity. Dr Susanna Birnoff is a senior lecturer in modern and contemporary visual culture and is the author of Portraits of Violence, War and the Aesthetics of Disfigurement. Her work looks at themes of embodiment and visual anxiety through the modern period. It is really interesting to look at the portrayal in the wartime press of men with facial war injuries compared to amputees, so men who lost one or more limbs um, and who then were fitted with, with prosthetic artificial legs, artificial arms and so on. Um, what do you find is a very different picture. Uh, firstly, um, it, it's almost always the case uh, in this country that men with facial injuries aren't, aren't actually visibly shown in the press. So you might find very detailed descriptions, sometimes almost sort of gothic descriptions of their injuries and of the miraculous work being done by surgeons uh, and sculptors like Francis Derwent Wood. Um, but you, you rarely find those, uh, those stories illustrated and if you do, you see you know, may, maybe an image of somebody with fre fresh bandages, no visible wounds and no, no visible disfigurement. Um, on the other hand, you do find um, a lot of images in the illustrated press of amputees. Uh, and you see these men sometimes at the Queen Mary Auxiliary Hospital in Roehampton where they fitted um, amputees with artificial legs. Sometimes you th see these men playing sport, uh, playing football or cricket on crutches. Um, so you, you, what you see, I think, um, with the limbless is an attempt, you know, again, this is partly at the level of propaganda, but you see an attempt to um, sort of re-inscribe these altered bodies um, with virtues, masculine virtues, um, um, athleticism, virility. Now, this doesn't happen um, in the case of men with facial injuries. You're much more likely to see them um, or read about them uh, doing things like working in the uh, Queen's Hospital in um, Sidcup, 
had had its own workshops. It had a working farm as well. Uh, and I can think of several articles that feature um, some of the men at the hospital petting rabbits, feeding chickens, um, making um, woolly plush toys um, in the toy workshop. Um, there's also quite a lot of discussion about the fact that the face is a site of and a source of identity and that in um, losing part of one's face um, or in having one's appearance, um, you know, sort of radically changed, what's happening is that you're losing, um, I can remember one um, newspaper article that describes this man as losing the visible proof of their identity. Uh, so this sense that you'd lost something that was uniquely yours, um, that that could never be regained, and um, uh, and so I think you know the the um, the idea that surgery could give these men back their their faces, give them back their identity, restore their humanity, was a very uh, appealing one with limbless veterans um, who were also very often stigmatized and certainly um, had had you know the same kinds of problems getting their war pensions so this is certainly not to suggest that they had an easier time of it but there was at least an attempt to celebrate these men as war heroes um, and there was an attempt you know in the press to suggest that the male body could be prosthetically remade that it could be made whole and and that really does rely on a, this understanding of the the body as this sort of machine like thing um, with removable and replaceable parts now if you remove a limb but you can replace it with um, with a functioning artificial limb you know that doesn't detract from the machine it can you know as we saw with the Paralympics you know actually make that machine more efficient faster stronger uh, the face is not seen that way but people aren't machines. Hans Falada's Iron Gustav was written in 1938 and chronicled the traumatic atmosphere of post-war Berlin. During the four long years of war, people had become accustomed to the sight of maimed men. Otherwise anyone finding himself unprepared amid these horrors might well imagine himself in hell. Armless and legless, Trousers pushed up to show the thick purple or red scabs on the stumps. There they sat, the mutilated. Those with faces terribly scarred and burnt. Those with missing jaws. Horror upon horror. With perfect regularity, a man in field grey knocked the back of his head twice a second against the wall. A hundred and twenty times a minute. 7,200 times an hour, and the back of his head was one enormous wound. And it was in front of such a uniquely wounded man that the lad had stopped. This man might have been young, but there was no means of saying. The whole face was an immense scar with terrible black edges running into each other like the frontier lines on a map. Of the lips there was hardly any trace. The nose looked as if burnt black. Most horrible, however, were the shriveled eyeballs without pupils. At regular intervals, without altering the pitch of his voice or any accusation, he said over and over again the one word, blind, 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 blind. And in this word, blind, there was something terrible, 
something more terrible than a lament. It was like the soulless ticking of a clock. The word seemed drowned in the street noises, and yet people in a great hurry, in a very great hurry, stopped and put money into the hand held open against his chest. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, my name's Lauren Barnes. I'm assistant curator at Tate Liverpool, and we are here in the Otto Dix exhibition um, at Tate Liverpool. I guess the thing to say is that, that Dix was a soldier in the First World War. He was a machine gunner, so everything that he was painting, he had actually seen, and that really reflects, I think, in the way he was making his work. So we have a drawing that he made while he was actually on the front, so um, it's called Stormtrooper, and there's this kind of vision of a, um, a soldier whose face looks kind of skull-like, so already indicating this idea of... Um, death or uh, injury. After the First World War, Dix went back to Dresden where he'd been based before the war um, and he continued his studies um, and started to really try and establish himself as a painter and after a couple of years in Dresden, that was, that was when he moved to Dusseldorf, um, started to make a few sales, really started to make um, a huge series of prints and of watercolours and this was also the point of hyperinflation in Germany so um, selling paintings, oil paintings on canvas was not going to be a viable option for him so in a way this choice to work in these lower cost media was an economic one, it was something which was responding to that situation that he was in but it meant that he made 400 watercolours in two years between 1922 and 24. So this was really the point where he was expanding his um, range of subjects and looking 
uh, at these subjects from what he saw as the fringes of society, so sailors and people in brothels and people in circuses and um, people who reflected the way that life had changed in Germany after the war. So in the war etching, Styx was trying to reflect, I think, the breadth of the horrific things that he had seen. So you get um, the encounters with prostitutes and you get um, ruined landscapes and dead bodies, but he also wanted to show the effect on individuals. So this is a work which is called Transplant from the fifth um, portfolio um, of the war etchings. And behind, is, it's essentially a, a front-on portrait of someone. Behind him you can see there's a kind of um, head of a hospital bed, this tubular steel bed. So um, he's kind of identified as being um, in recovery the majority of his upper um, face is transplanted so his entire forehead and his nose um, the, the area where one of his eyes would have been is transplanted with um, some replacement skin we can only imagine and his, his face is entirely um, given over to this um, this surgery that's happened um, so I think as well as reflecting what actually happened in the conflict itself Dix was interested in these kind of individual impacts on people and how this conflict had dramatically altered people's um, people's faces the, the survivors that were going to um, to go on living after the war I think it's less beauty than I there's there really is something in Dix, particularly at this period, that is about provocation and is about saying, we really didn't want to see this, but now I'm making you see it and, and wanting to surprise people with subjects that they um, did not expect to come across in this medium. I think that's, that is really behind it. You're kind of, uh, yes, wanting to shock is very much there. This seems to have really, I think, a... There feels to me a conflict between um, the ways that Dix was seeing this work. So clearly this face is never going to be the same again. He's kind of drawing attention to the stitches and the way that um, there's this artificial structure added onto, uh, onto the face. But there's something in the eye that is the... the patient's surviving eye and in his mouth that there's there's some kind of dignity in it I think in a sense that this horrific thing has happened to him and he will never look the same again but actually he's going to go on um, surviving and will will be able to move on I don't know there's it, it clearly is bringing those two things together faced with these horrific images of the war's impact on German men artists in Weimar Germany began to experiment with merging humans and machines. I'm Matthew Biro, professor of modern and contemporary art at the University of Michigan. Cyborgs manifested themselves in Weimar culture visually. That's something that I found very striking. Now remember that the term cyborg does not really exist until the 60s. So the cyborg was something that was not part of German culture, part of Weimar culture as a concept, but I discovered it as a visual image in both the art, the film, the advertising, and even the right-wing propaganda in Germany between 
the late teens and the early 30s. Okay, so the Dada artists, and I'm thinking of figures like Raoul Hausman, George Gross, John Hartfield, Hannah Hirsch, used the cyborg both to criticize the old order, figures like a field marshal uh, von Hindenburg or the, the Kaiser William II as um, broken, uh, monstrous figures concerned only for themselves, stepping over and destroying um, their subjects, but also um, technologically enhanced figures that were very powerful, that controlled planes, trains, the media, things like that. They also used the cyborg to represent themselves as figures who were trying to understand this new world order. For this reason, they used a new technique called photomontage, the cutting together of different photographs, um, adding text, drawing, watercolor, paint, things like that to make new artworks. So they were also making a mechanized form of art. So they were opposing that old handmade, more traditional form of art with this new mechanized form of art. So that was the first response was really as, you know, a lingering sign of the First World War and the destruction of the old water, old order and the bankruptcy of the values that um, led um, Europe into the First World War, which included not only the rise of technology, but also the, um, the Enlightenment, the sense that... Um, human beings are getting progressively more rational, their societies are becoming um, progressively more perfect. That was shattered by the experience of the First World War. Because they appropriated imagery from newspapers and magazines, it also allowed them to be much more political again, which was also central to their understanding of the new Dada art that was going to be much more commensurate with the booming, buzzing confusion of the modern world. Not only was um, radio being developed at the time, but cinema really came into its own, and Germany developed a, a really amazing film industry with true artists and creative individuals contributing to it. Metropolis is a movie by Fritz Lang, which he started to film in 1925, finished in 1927, um, which bankrupted the main studio in Germany at the time. It was the most expensive movie made to date, and it depicts a city of the future. I believe it's in 2026 that the story takes place where a small and pampered ruling class rules a large body of enslaved workers who toil below the surface of the city. The purpose of the cyborg in the film Metropolis is to serve as a warning for the dangers of technology. It is designed to show how technology enslaves workers, makes them uh, subservient to machines. And so 
it delights in its own processes of manipulating images, which it foregrounds through various montage sequences. So there's also a sense, the more positive sense of the cyborg, the sense that the cyborg becomes a way for us to understand how technology affects our lives and therefore a way of making us allowing us to live in the world more in a, a more human, holistic, full fashion. This sense of technology as expanding our sensorium is also implicit in the Metropolis film, although, as I've argued in my book, The Weimar Cyborg, becomes much more explicit earlier on with the Dada artists who show the positive side of um, cybernetic augmentation um, more directly. In the next episode, we're looking at epidemics and how artists and scientists tackle outbreaks of disease. The series is funded by the Wellcome Trust. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.